0: Welcome to the iFormRx Podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. My name is Stuart Haynes, and I'm the host of the iFormRx Podcast. Major depressive disorder is among the most common chronic diseases seen in practice today, with approximately 8% of adults in the United States reporting they suffer from depression, and more than 10% of women report suffering from depression. While selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors remain the first-line treatment option, they take several weeks to work and many patients don't have an adequate response. And there are several other options available out there, but most are slow to work and many have undesirable adverse effects. So recently, there's been considerable interest in psilocybin, a psychedelic drug found in the psilocybe mushroom as a potential treatment for intractable depression. To date, there have been a few small studies that have suggested that psilocybin might be effective and symptom improvement has been relatively rapid when compared to more traditional pharmacological treatment methods. So when the New England Journal of Medicine published a report about the use of psilocybin for major depression, I figured it was high time that we took a closer look. And here to discuss the study are Dr. Brittany Parmentier from the University of Texas at Tyler and Dr. Andrea Church from Palm Beach Atlantic University. Dr. Parmentier is a clinical pharmacy specialist and board certified psychiatric pharmacist who practices in the inpatient psychiatric unit at UT Health East Texas, and Dr. Church is also a board-certified psychiatric pharmacist and practices as a psychiatric clinical pharmacy specialist at the JFK North Medical Center in sunny West Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, Dr. Parmentier and Dr. Church are first-time contributors to iFormRx. So, Brittany, Andrea, thanks so much for joining me today for the iFormRx podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Stuart, for inviting us to contribute.
2: Yes, Stuart, thank you so much. We are very excited to be here.
0: So before we talk about the study that you reviewed in your iFormerX commentary, I'd like to get a better understanding of the landscape today in terms of the treatment of intractable depression. I know that pharmacotherapy and particularly the use of SSRIs and SNRIs remain the mainstay of treatment, but... Many patients don't have an adequate response, and some patients require more than one medication. And as I mentioned in my introduction, it often takes several days, even weeks, for a patient to have a discernible response. So for a patient who's acutely depressed, this can delay the response. This long delay in the response is obviously not ideal, And if they require hospitalization, it can extend the length of stay. So what are some of the current recommendations in terms of treating someone who is acutely depressed or for those who don't have an adequate response to more traditional approaches?
1: When a person is acutely depressed, the first thing psychiatrists or other physicians will do is determine the severity of depression. Depending on the severity, we will treat with psychotherapy and or pharmacotherapy. If the patient's on a medication, we'll just adjust the regimen, but we'll discuss that in a minute. So, if a medication is going to be started, typically in moderate to severe depression, we can start with, as you mentioned, the SSRIs, SNRIs, or we could also do bupropion or mirtazapine as our first-line options. And again, this may be in conjunction with psychotherapy, such as CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. So, what we're describing sounds pretty straightforward, but you could also have a patient presenting with an acute episode of depression who's also receiving pharmacotherapy as well already, which leads to the next point about what to do if a patient is having an inadequate response.
2: Right. So looking strictly at pharmacotherapy, if a patient is not adequately responding to their current medication, the first thing to look at is dose and length of time they have been on that medication. That's pretty common sense. As you already mentioned, Stuart, antidepressants can take six to eight weeks to reach full efficacy. So while there may be some symptom improvement in those initial weeks, the full effects can take longer. We also want to check for patient adherence before categorizing them as, quote, failing the treatment. We know that there can be treatment non-adherence for a variety of reasons, notably side effect profiles. And if there are intolerable side effects to their antidepressant, that can definitely be a valid reason to explore another medication. So beyond that, if you have a patient who has been on adequate dose and duration but is still not responding, there are a lot of next-step options to consider. So, for example, we could switch to another antidepressant in the same class or switch to another antidepressant in a different class. We could also augment with certain antidepressants in in another class, for example, bupropion, or augment with a non-antidepressant, for example, some certain antipsychotics.
0: So, let's talk about the study you reviewed in your iFormerX commentary. The study is entitled Trial of Psilocybin versus Escitalopram for Depression, and it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in April 2021. Now, we provide a link to that paper on the iFormerX website, but can you give us a brief summary of the study methods and its results?
1: In this study, there were 59 individuals with moderate to severe depression who were enrolled, and 29 of those were randomized to the escitalopram arm and 30 to the psilocybin arm. The participants were blinded to their treatment. This study was six weeks in length and included two psilocybin dosing days. So how the study was set up is the participants started the study with a psilocybin dosing day one, followed by three weeks, then dosing day two, followed by another three weeks. The psilocybin group received psilocybin 25 milligrams and placebo capsules to take at home. And then the estatalopram group received psilocybin one milligram which is not expected to have any pharmacologic effect, and escitalopram capsules to take it home. The escitalopram group took 10 milligrams for the first three weeks and 20 milligrams of escitalopram the last three weeks of the study. It's also important to note that on the psilocybin dosing days, the participants had two mental health professionals with them at all times who acted as a guide to support their visit
2: activities. So then when we're looking at the results, the primary clinical outcome was the change in score from baseline to six weeks in the 16 item quick inventory of depressive symptomology self-report. That is a mouthful to say, so I'm going to just be referring to it as the Kids SR16. That's QIDS 16 Much easier to say. Um, and so, a higher score on this scale denotes more severe depression. There was a mean change from baseline to week six in the Kids SR16 score, where the psilocybin group dropped eight points and the escitalopram group dropped six points but there was no statistically significant difference in the primary outcome between these two treatment arms. The two most commonly reported adverse drug events were headache and nausea, but no serious adverse drug events occurred. And furthermore, there were no psychiatric adverse drug events such as visual perceptual changes or symptoms of psychosis reported.
0: So obviously this is a pretty small study, and I don't think we have enough evidence to support the actual use of psilocybin in, in routine clinical practice just yet. Nonetheless, there are some obvious strengths to the study, including the fact that it was not a placebo control trial, but rather the investigators actually used an active comparator, which I think is a strength, What do you perceive to be the strengths, weaknesses, and limitations of the study? Are there any of the results that particularly show promise to you, anything particularly concerning?
1: Yeah, that's a really good point, Stuart. So as you mentioned, a strength of the study is that psilocybin was compared to an active first-line medication, which was escitalopram, to see how it performs against this current standard of care. Another strength is that participants were being directly observed by a clinician, which they called a psychotherapy guide, for four to six hours when they received the psilocybin. And that was to ensure safety, tolerability, and provide support during their psilocybin dosing. We do discuss a number of limitations in the commentary, but we have a couple that we want to highlight here. One of the most significant weaknesses of this trial is that the trial was too short at only six weeks. As we've mentioned earlier, it can take up to two months to see full efficacy of an antidepressant. So while they did reach FDA-approved max dose of 20 milligrams in the escitalopram group, In reality, they should have extended the trial to at least eight weeks to ensure that we had the maximum amount of time individuals
2: could take to achieve that full efficacy. And as Brittany just mentioned, right, there were 59 patients and this was only a phase two trial. So we know that a phase three trial with larger enrollment is definitely going to be needed before we can extrapolate and apply this to our clinical practice. So another barrier that we want to point out is implementing this in a real-world clinical setting is the amount of time that a patient needs to be observed by a trained clinician while undergoing psilocybin treatment. When looking at how psilocybin compares to escitalopram or other antidepressant treatment for that matter, the biggest challenge we think will really be that real-world application, as I just mentioned, because in a normal hospital or clinic setting, a healthcare provider is not going to be able to dedicate multiple hours to one patient. In terms of the KIDS SR16 score, it is promising that psilocybin demonstrated score reduction, of course, as did acetylopram, because that illustrated improvement in depression symptoms. We believe that the decrease in the KIDS SR16 score for psilocybin in this trial is a clinically significant finding.
0: The authors make somewhat of a big deal out of the fact that the response was quicker, which would have a significant advantage, particularly for hospitalized patients, if you were to get significantly quicker symptom control and could discharge them. Do you see that as a potential advantage of this particular treatment?
2: So, yes, in my opinion, I would think that if you have a medication that has a quicker response and you're able to get whatever the acute symptoms of the depression are more under control and be able to get them discharged and have that transition of care plan and onward to the outpatient follow-up aspect, that would potentially be a benefit.
1: Absolutely. The faster that we can get control of depression symptoms will absolutely benefit the patient's What's interesting is that other newer medications out uh, really focus on the fast onset of action, and I didn't actually get the impression that this one is as fast of a response as something like esketamine when they're measuring the response in hours after people receive a dose. So, it, it will be interesting to see how some of these newer medications uh, stack up against each other.
0: I think one of the issues that's going to make the use of psilocybin in the United States a bit tricky is restrictions that are placed on Schedule One controlled substances. Uh, there are obviously regulatory hurdles to conduct similar clinical trials in the United States. And I'm wondering if psilocybin, which was first extracted from a natural product, can be produced in sufficient quantities to make it available for patients in routine clinical practice. Can you talk through with us some of the unique issues that this drug will likely face if it is ever considered as a therapeutic entity in the United States?
2: Yes, you bring up some very good points. So as you mentioned, psilocybin is currently a Schedule One drug, which means it has no therapeutic benefit. So if psilocybin was approved to treat depression, it would move to a different scheduled class, but we do think it would continue to be scheduled medication for sure because there will be potential for abuse and misuse. We also believe that the FDA oversight will be really important because we think there will be very strict criteria attached to its use in clinical practice. So for example, first and foremost, implementation of a REMS program, similar to what we've seen with esketamine, could be put in place in order to ensure its safety and to directly monitor the patients during administration. We do not foresee this being a take-home therapy.
1: And you bring up a really good point, Stuart, about the ability to produce this in sufficient quantities. We do think it's possible that psilocybin could be produced in sufficient quantities, but if they discover barriers to plant extraction, could a synthetic form later be explored? We think in these early stages of research, when there are honestly more questions than answers, anything is possible. The last thing that we want to add is that we believe that certain patients will be interested in psilocybin treatment and others simply will not be. In this study, patients were self-referred to the study, so they may have been more interested in psilocybin in general than the general population. There is still a bit of stigma around psychedelics even though this is a re-emerging field of research. Both of us frequently have patients who state that they would prefer to be on what they consider a natural drug for mental health conditions. A good example of this is medical marijuana and CBD use, which is marketed as natural treatment options psilocybin might fall into the same category especially if it has a more favorable side effect profile again phase three studies will give us more of the answers that we need to move forward
0: well Andrea Brittany, I want to thank you both for joining me today and and writing the commentary about the use of psilocybin for the treatment of major depressive disorder. I think it's clear from your comments that you believe that there is some potential here, but there are lots of barriers to using this particular product. And it'll be a long time before this product actually comes to market, if it ever comes to market. Well, tell us what you think. Only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on the site. Any health professional can become a member of iFormerX, so sign up today. It's free. And if you are a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist and you would like to earn continuing education and recertification credit for this program, check out the American Pharmacists Association's Evidence-Based Practice Series, Through our partnership with APHA, this podcast and the associated commentary are available for recertification credit. So click on the link that's posted below the commentary on our website to learn more. And lastly, I want to say a thank you to Melissa Palmer and Jordan Cooler, who maintain the iFormerX Substance Use Disorder Clinical Trial and Practice Guideline page. Melissa and Jordan recently updated the resource page to include information about preconception counseling for women who have a substance use disorder, as well as the impact of COVID-19 on substance use disorder. So if you haven't checked out our resource pages lately, and particularly the substance use disorders page, I encourage you to do so. You need to be a member of iFormerX to view our resource pages, so be sure to sign in every time you visit. And again, my thanks to Melissa and Jordan for being authors, reviewers, and resource page managers. You're awesome. And until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, editor in chief of iFormerX, signing off.